We find ourselves in the middle of a series of sermons that I began last month, which I entitled, Oh, Perfect Redemption. It's a study of the extent of the atonement. We are seeking to give Scripture's answer to the question, to whom does the atonement extend? Or to put it a bit more plainly, for whom has Christ died? Did Christ die on the cross for every single individual who has ever lived throughout human history? Or did he die on the cross only for those whom the Father chose and gave to him in eternity past? Those who will eventually come to faith and finally be saved. Now that is, of course, a controversial question. And it's a question that has divided professing believers throughout the history of the church and divides believers still today. For that reason, any helpful treatment on the matter can't be simplistic. It can't be reductionistic. We can't just throw out a few proof texts and declare the matter closed. The issue is more complex than that. Both in the introduction to the sermon series and in the most recent message that I gave, I spoke of a common stalemate that's often reached in discussions on the extent of the atonement. On the one hand, you have verses like Mark 10:45, which says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, ostensibly speaking of a limited or a particular extent of the atonement. A ransom for many. And on the other hand, you have verses like 1 Timothy 2.6, which say that he gave himself as a ransom for all, seemingly identifying a universal extent of the atonement. Virtually identical statements with seemingly opposite comments on extent. And I've been saying that just stacking up the many texts against the all texts, the particular texts against the universal texts, That's not going to get us anywhere because both sets of texts are in the Bible. Both are the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And therefore, we must understand both sets of texts as true, as authoritative, and very importantly, as harmonious. Mark 10.45 does not have a different doctrine of the extent of the atonement than 1 Timothy 2.6. The question is, does the many in Mark 10.45 refer to many as opposed to all without exception? Many not all? Or does it refer to many as opposed to the one who ransoms the many? Right? Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for many, the one for the many, not specifying how many, many they are. Or does the all in 1 Timothy 2.6 refer to all without exception, to every individual who has ever lived throughout history? Or does it refer to all without distinction, all kinds and classes of people like the kings and all who are in authority that are mentioned just a few verses earlier in 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. The answer to those questions does not come as a result of yelling all, many, louder and louder at each other. 
I've said a couple of times already that the key to breaking the stalemate concerning apparently contradictory statements on the extent of the atonement is to set those isolated texts in the larger context of all of Scripture's teaching, not just on the extent of the atonement, but also on the design and nature of the atonement. Why is that? Well, think about it. If Scripture teaches that God's design for Christ's atonement is to make as many people as possible savable, then we have reason to interpret language like all and world in a universal rather than a particular sense. In a, there's a sense in which this is true of all people. He came to just make it possible for everybody. It's possible for everybody. Therefore, universal. But if Scripture teaches that God's design for Christ's atonement is to actually save those whom the Father has chosen in eternity past, well, then we have a reason to interpret all and world in a particular rather than universal sense. The same is true with the nature of the atonement. If Scripture teaches that Christ's death merely made salvation possible, that it provided salvation, but it didn't actually save well, that would fit more naturally with the universal atonement. But if Scripture teaches that Christ's death actually accomplished salvation, that it actually secured salvation, that all those for whom he died cannot fail to be brought to heaven, then, since not all without exception are finally saved, that would fit more naturally with a particular atonement. You see, the clear biblical teaching on the design and the nature of the atonement helps us interpret the less clear teaching on the extent of the atonement. Well, in our last message, we began to examine the design of the atonement. And we began with the designer of the atonement, the triune God of the Scriptures, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in, in that sermon, we saw how the unity of the Trinity demands a particular redemption. The argument was that because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are perfectly united in their essence, the three persons of the Trinity must be united both in their saving intentions and in their saving acts. What the Father wills must be what the Son wills, and what the Son wills must be what the Spirit wills. Those whom the Father intends to save must be the exact same number as those whom the Son intends to save. And those whom the Son intends to save must be the exact same number as those whom the Spirit intends to save. And since Scripture teaches that the Father has chosen to save a particular people and not all without exception, and since it teaches that the Spirit will regenerate that same particular people and not all without exception, it also teaches that the Son has atoned for that same particular people and not all without exception. And so Jesus says in John 6, 38, that he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. In John 6, 39, he says what the will is. He says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose none. And so we learned last time that the Father didn't give to the Son all people without exception. He gave to the Son only some out of the world, John 17, his elect, his chosen ones. And therefore, it's only for the elect, the chosen, those whom his Father has given him that Jesus lays down his life as the good shepherd, as an atonement for sin. So 
summarizing last time's message, the Father has elected some and not all. The Spirit regenerates some and not all. To suggest that Christ has atoned for all and not some is to put the persons of the Trinity entirely at odds with one another. It would mean that the Son's saving intentions are not the Father's saving intentions. It would mean that the will of the Son is not the will of the Father and the Spirit. And that not only undermines the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity, the fact that they share a common essence, but it flatly contradicts Christ's own explicit statements that He had come not to do His own will, but precisely to do the will of His Father. And so I concluded last time that unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. And so we learned last time that all three persons of the Trinity are perfectly united in conceiving and carrying out the plan of salvation. What the Father intends in sending the Son into the world what the, is what the Son intends in undertaking His atoning mission, and it's the same thing that the Spirit intends when He applies the Son's work. They are identical. They are the exact same intention. They are the exact same design. Well, this morning, I want to address what precisely that intention was. Given that the persons of the Trinity are united in their design, what does Scripture teach about what they intended the cross to accomplish? And it's important for us to recognize that this concept of divine intention is absolutely central to the debate over the extent of the atonement. And that's because... God accomplishes his intentions, doesn't he? God brings all of his purposes to pass. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does according to his will. Nobody can stay his, stay his hand. Nobody can call him to account. And Job says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of Almighty God can be thwarted. Whatever the triune God intends or designs or purposes in the atonement must certainly be accomplished. So what did the triune God intend? in the atonement. What is it that Christ has come into the world to do? Think about the answers you often hear to that question. Think about the answers you might give to that question, especially when you're speaking the gospel to unbelievers. Well, we've cut ourselves off from God by our sin, but Jesus came to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. On our own, we can do nothing to commend ourselves to God, but Jesus came to make it possible for sinners to have fellowship with their Creator. Because of the provision made by Christ's death, all who believe can be saved. 
Christ came to provide salvation to all who will repent and trust in him. Do you recognize any of those phrases? They don't sound bad. We may not realize it and we may not even believe it, but we may say it. Isn't it interesting how often so many of us cast the intent of Christ's atonement as in inherently provisional terms? To make a way, to open a door, to make it possible, to make provision, to make salvation available. But is that how Scripture speaks of the divine intention for Christ's death? No, it's not. We think of the atonement, and, and sadly enough, some of us speak about the atonement as if it merely opened doors, as if it merely removed obstacles, as if it merely made provision, as if it's a potential or provisional payment which remains impotent and ineffective until it's actualized by the sinner's faith. All hail the almighty will of man. Others of us might think of it this way. Maybe some of us who've studied theology a little bit more. Some people say Christ's atonement did more than make provision for the salvation in the case of the elect. He actually saved them by his death, but then his death did other things as well, like purchasing common grace or like providing the opportunity for salvation for all without exception, even whom the Father didn't choose, like making it possible to preach the gospel to all without exception like the redemption of the cosmos at the end of the age. But what does Scripture say? How do the biblical authors cast the Father's intention for sending the Son into the world? How do they capture the design and the purpose for Christ's atoning work? The Word of God speaks of the atonement as that by which God intends to secure salvation, not merely provide for it to accomplish redemption, not merely to make it possible, to satisfy, to reconcile, to redeem, and actually to save. You see, the cross of itself saves sinners. Saving faith does not activate the cross's power. The cross's power purchases and secures saving faith. The cross's power doesn't depend on faith being added to it. The cross's power is such that the faith, that faith, saving faith, flows from it. And so here's my argument for this morning. Scripture consistently and uniformly identifies the Trinity's unified intention for the atonement as exclusively salvific. And I'll say that again. Scripture consistently and uniformly identifies the Trinity's unified intention for the atonement as exclusively salvific. Contrary to the claims of those who hold to a universal atonement and contrary to those who would attempt to find middle ways between a universal and particular atonement, the Word of God never identifies God's intention for the atonement as mere provisions, possibilities, or procurements which may not be applied to those for whom they were purchased. Instead, the writers of Scripture teach that the divine intention for the atonement was that Christ would actually save those for whom he died, purchasing their redemption in such a way that they whom he redeemed cannot fail to be, well, redeemed. 
cannot fail to be set free from sin unto salvation. And so if God's intentions must certainly come to pass because he does all his good pleasure and no purpose of his can be thwarted, and if his intention for the atonement is not to make provisions or possibilities, but to actually save, then all those for whom Christ died must certainly be saved. And since we know not all are saved, Christ's atonement is particular and not universal. And I hope to make that case in two stages. First, I want to consider the explicit statements of Scripture that speak to the intention for the atonement. And then secondly, since we believe that all of God's intentions must come to pass, I want to consider the statements of Scripture that speak to the actual effects of the atonement. And again, my argument is that both the intention and the effects of the atonement are presented as exclusively salvific. So point number one, the salvific intention of the atonement. Point number two, the salvific effect of the atonement. And before I jump in, I just want to say uh, that my method this morning will be to quote a lot of Scripture. So we're going to be in a number of passages, not just a single one, so many that it might feel more like a Bible study than a sermon, but that's intentional. One of the most rewarding aspects of my study last semester as I, I worked on the chapter for my dissertation was seeing this truth, how uniformly and consistently and pervasively and relentlessly the New Testament declares that both the intent and the effect of the atonement was to save and not to provide or make possible or anything else. You might think, okay, maybe there are a handful of texts that speak to the purpose of the atonement, but the reality is, is that there is a mountain of texts and they all speak with one voice. And so I just want to overwhelm you with that this morning. And though there will be a lot of texts, I still won't be able to get to all of them. So buckle up. Point number one, the salvific intention of the atonement. And really, we're just going to walk through the, the New Testament here in four categories. We'll look first at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then we'll look at John's writings, then Paul's writings, and then the so-called general epistles. So the first text that expresses a clear intention for the coming of the Son of Man into the world is Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. Interestingly, Matthew 18, 11 may not be in some of your Bibles because it's missing from a number of New Testament manuscripts. It says... For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And though it's likely that that statement was actually not in Matthew's original writings, it was in Luke's. Whatever scribe added it to Matthew was probably remembering it from Luke 19.10, which says almost identically, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. But both texts whether it's only in Luke or whether it belongs in Matthew too, both texts make it clear that the intention for this coming of the Son of Man is that he would save the lost. Now turn to Matthew 20. As James and John contend with one another for their own greatness in the kingdom of Jesus, the Lord rebukes their selfish ambition by teaching that leadership in his kingdom is not marked by lordship, but it's marked by service. That's an example that he himself modeled for them. And then in Matthew 20, verse 28, 
he makes the same statement that we've been quoting from Mark 10:45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I know that we read that and we want to focus immediately on many. And I understand that, and that's important. But what we're focused on right now is intent. And this text tells us that the deliberate goal and purpose of Jesus coming is identified as giving his life as a ransom. Now, the term ransom translates the Greek term lutron. It's a a word that originated in practices of warfare, where lutron was the price that was paid to bring a prisoner of war out of captivity. Both in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, the term was associated with practices of atonement and redemption, specifically because Scripture describes man's predicament in sin as slavery and captivity. So our sin holds us in bondage. And so the Son of Man has come into the world with the intention that the many who are enslaved to sin would be released into the freedom of salvation through the giving of his life as the substitutionary lutron, as the substitutionary ransom price to be paid for them. So you see, there is no word here about Christ coming to make these slaves redeemable. There's nothing about providing for the possibility of their release. Christ's intention is that the ransom price of his blood will actually free the captives for whom he pays. Okay, let's go to the book of John. Skipping other texts we could go to, but understanding that you won't listen to me for two hours. John chapter 3. And in John 3, 16 and 17 we have one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture and one of the most disputed passages in the atonement debate. You know the verses, but we'll read them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on those two verses. But again, what we're concerned with here is what they say about the intention of the atonement. And we see in verse 16 that the purpose for which God gave his only begotten son to die was was so that the ones who believe in Jesus would have eternal life. Not that they would have the opportunity for eternal life, but that they would have eternal life. Verse 17 only emphasizes this salvific intention even further. The Father sent the Son into the world that the world might be saved through him. Now, I understand that we have to define world there. I understand that the universal atonement person is going to come along and say, see, world. But no matter who world refers to there, the purpose, the intention of God for sending his Son into the world is that they would be saved. We say, wait a second, verse 17 doesn't say they would be saved. It says they might be saved. Isn't that a comment on potentiality? You know, they might be saved, but they might not. If you were asking that, that's a good question. But the answer is no. And the reason has to do with the nature of the subjunctive mood in Greek, which is riveting stuff. And I could explain it to you, but then I'd have to wake you all up. 
So I'm, instead, I'm just going to read a short quote from expert grammarian Dan Wallace on this construction. So Wallace says, quote, we must not suppose that this use of the subjunctive necessarily implies any doubt about the fulfillment of the verbal action on the part of the speaker. Not only is hina, the Greek word for so that, not only is hina used for result in the New Testament, but also for purpose result. That is, it indicates both the intention and its sure accomplishment. In other words, the New Testament writers employ the language to reflect their theology. What God purposes is what happens. And consequently, hina is used to express both the divine purpose and the result. And so, in fact, the same exact construction is used in verse 16 as it is in verse 17. When verse 16 says, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, that's the same construction. One verse says, shall not perish. The next one says, might be saved. The important thing to recognize is that it's entirely unfounded to think that verse 16 is saying, whoever believes in Jesus might not perish, but might have eternal life. As if might intends to indicate, communicate some sort of doubt or uncertainty. It doesn't. And the same is true for verse 17, which is the exact same construction. Jesus comes not that they might be saved in that sense of the word might, but that they would indeed be saved. He comes not to bring the possibility of salvation. He comes to bring salvation itself. Turn to John 6, verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. So Jesus is going to give his flesh in death for the life of the world. The intention in giving his flesh in death is to bring life to the world. Not the provision of life, but life itself. We see the same thing in John 10, 10. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' intention is not merely to offer life to people. His intention, I came that they might have life. His intention is that he wants to actually impart this life. And then John 12, 46 and 47. He says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and doesn't keep them, I don't judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So one commentator who rejects particular redemption says that by saying Jesus comes to save the world in John 12, 47, he says Jesus makes salvation available to all people without exception. But that is just not what the text says. We see nothing of the concept of availability in those verses. Jesus does not say that he came to make salvation available to the world. He says he came to save the world. And so whoever it is that the world refers to in that verse, if they are not saved and Jesus came to save them, then Jesus fails of his intention. One more text in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and especially in verse 19. We need to go back to the high priestly prayer. John 17, 19. 
Jesus says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So here's Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion, coming to the pinnacle of his work as the high priest of his people, namely to make propitiation for them by the substitutionary sacrifice of his life as he pours out his life to death. And in this high priestly context, Jesus speaks of sanctifying himself, which is a funny expression. Jesus was always perfectly holy. He didn't need to be any more sanctified in that sense than he already was. But what this speaks about is his being the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. So Exodus 28 and 29, you don't have to turn there, prescribes that priests be consecrated for their priestly service. Just mark down the reference. Exodus 28, 41 says, you shall put the garments on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with them, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. That's the same word as sanctify in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as appears in John 17. You shall consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Same is true of the high priest on the day of atonement. Leviticus 16 verses 2 to 6. Again, just write that reference down. Speaks of the high priest making atonement for himself and his household before ministering on behalf of the people. Well, as Jesus prepares himself for his high priestly work on the ultimate day of atonement, he consecrates himself as our great high priest. And so this comment, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, is bringing in all of that imagery of day of atonement, Old Testament priesthood, because he is operating as a priest for his people in the hours to come. And note the purpose. Note the express purpose of his priestly consecration. Verse 19, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves, who are they? Well, we, we looked at it you know, extensively last time, but just let your eyes go back to verse nine. Verse nine is, is, says that they are not the world, but those whom the father has given the son out of the world, which is to say the elect. They're the they. And so for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they would be sanctified in truth. So Jesus intends for his atonement to accomplish the actual, effectual sanctification of his people. Not just their redemption, not just their justification, but their sanctification. So Jesus is not coming for the possibility that he might be, these people might be saved, but that they would come into actual possession of all of the benefits of redemption, including sanctification. So we're going to stick with the writings of John, but we're going to go to his first epistle. So turn over to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. 1 John 3, 5. And here we find one of the clearest, most categorical statements of the salvific intent of the atonement. 1 John 3, 5. says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And so in the context in which the churches of Asia are beset with the false teaching of indifference to sin, John explains that those who are united to and follow Christ can have nothing to do with sin 
because their Savior has come into the world for the express purpose of taking away sins. And how are sins taken away? John 1, 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's by atonement. It's by the shedding of the blood of the sacrificial Lamb of God that sin is taken away. And so Christ appeared in his incarnation to offer himself as this sacrificial Lamb of God with the intention that his atoning work would actually and effectually take away sins. And so if those for whom he died do not actually and effectively have their sins taken away, what other conclusion could we come to but that Jesus has failed of his intention? Look down to verse 8, same chapter, 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And what are the works of the devil? Verse 4, the practice of sin. Beginning of verse 8, the practice of sin. Verse 9, the practice of sin. The devil tempts and enslaves men to sin. He certainly does more than that, but it's clear from the context of this passage that what John has in view when he says the works of the devil are the devil's work of tempting and enslaving men to a life of practicing sin. And so to destroy Satan's work of man's enslavement to sin, the Son of God appeared to take away sins, verse 5, by bearing it in himself as the Lamb of God. Christ did not merely intend his atonement to potentially destroy sin or to make it possible for sin to be destroyed. His intention was to actually destroy the works of the devil. Are you getting sick of this? It's amazing how insistent the New Testament is. Let's go to Paul's writings, to 2 Corinthians 5, a text that we have been familiar with as we've worked our way through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians 5, 15, to begin with, Paul says, And he, that is Christ, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Again, we're going to have to define the all as we think about that verse. But before we do, we need to observe that this text teaches that Christ died with the intention, with the purpose, that the beneficiaries of his death would live a life of sanctification, no longer devoted to themselves, but to Christ above all else. He dies so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him. See, the intention of the atonement was not merely to make men savable, but to purchase a salvation which would of necessity be applied unto the practical transformation of those for whom Christ died. Those for whom Christ died must be sanctified or Christ fails of his intention. The same is true with regard to justification in verse 21 of chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if those for whom Christ was made sin do not in reality become the righteousness of God in Christ, then once again, God has failed. You seeing this? If I die with the intention of justification and sanctification then if those for whom he dies are not justified and sanctified, I fail. Christ fails. 
Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Next book over. Chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul identifies Christ as the one who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The term rescue there, same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Yahweh's deliverance of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. In Israel's case, the Lord's intent was to conclusively transplant Israel from the yoke of their bondage in Egypt out unto the freedom of their redemption. So also in the cross, the Lord Jesus' intent, according to the will of God the Father, the verse says, was not merely to make provision for such a rescue, but to conclusively transfer his people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the purpose for which the Father sends the Son to earth is the redemption of those in bondage under the law. One commentator observes that redemption, quote, connotes liberation from enslavement involving the payment of a price, the price of Christ's death. So once again, it is redemption that Christ is aiming at in the cross, not mere redeemability. And that redemption consists not merely in the payment of a price, but the effectual release of those for whom the price was paid. So if you pay the price and they're not released, you don't have redemption, according to the biblical terminology. Then there's a second purpose clause in verse 5, that those who are redeemed would receive the adoption as sons. So the intent of the redemption purchased by Christ's cross work is to bring the redeemed into a proper relationship with God as the members of his family, those who enjoy all the rights and privileges of the household of God and become his adopted sons and daughters. He intends that those for whom he died not merely have the opportunity to become adopted sons and daughters, but that they might receive the adoption as sons. So Christ aims for nothing short of the full application of the salvation that he purchased for those for whom he died. If we had time, I'd take you to Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, which shows that the intent of Christ's atonement is the full and complete sanctification and glorification for the bride for whom he dies. And we could go to other texts, but I want to, for the sake of time, go to one more in Paul's writings, 1 Timothy 1, 15, which is part of the passage that Ron read for us this morning. In 1 Timothy 1.15, we find what is perhaps the most plain-spoken statement concerning the divine intention for the incarnation and atonement of Christ. Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And I love John Owen's comment on this passage. He says, Paul does not say Christ came to open a door for sinners to come in if they will or can, 
not to make a way passable that they may be saved, not to purchase reconciliation and pardon of his father, which perhaps they shall never enjoy, but actually to save them from all the guilt and power of sin and from the wrath of God for sin, which if he does not accomplish, he fails of the end of his coming. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to make sinners savable, not to make salvation possible, not to make heaven available. Christ came to save sinners. And we've run out of time for the general epistles, so I'll just cite a few passages quickly from Hebrews. Just write down the references and listen as you hear it, but Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Christ dies to free those for whom he dies from the slavery of the fear of death. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And what is propitiation? We're going to have a whole message on it, but it's nothing less than the efficacious satisfaction of divine wrath. That's what the word means. It means God is angry and propitiation satisfies that righteous anger. That's what Christ came to do not to make God propitiable, but to propitiate. Hebrews 9, 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The purpose for Christ's new covenant mediation through his redemptive death is that the called that is, those who were foreknown and predestined by the Father and eventually effectually called unto salvation, whom Romans 8 calls the elect, it, the purpose is so that the called would receive, again, to come into actual possession of the promise of the eternal inheritance. So have I convinced you? Have you seen for yourselves that the New Testament's characterization of the divine intention for Christ's atonement is uniformly and exclusively salvific? Look, we agree that Scripture teaches a universal common grace. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, Matthew 5.45. We agree with the necessity of universal gospel proclamation. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30, we agree that the cosmos will finally be redeemed. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8.21. But there is no mention of the Father or the Son or the Spirit intending the cross to accomplish or secure those realities. Still less is there any talk about the cross making anything merely possible. There is no text of Scripture which expressly sets forth any universal divine intentions for the cross in the manner of the above passages. You will search the Scriptures in vain for a statement like, the Son of Man has come to provide forgiveness, or you know that He appeared to provide common grace, 
or it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to make it possible for sinners to be saved. It's just not there. And so there are not multiple intentions for the atonement. There may be multiple angles from which the single salvific intention is expressed just because there are multiple facets of our salvation. But Scripture testifies with one voice that the divine intention for the atonement was to save sinners, Luke 19.10, to satisfy divine wrath, Hebrews 2.17, to take away sin, 1 John 3.5, to impart spiritual life, John 6.51, to free captives from slavery, Matthew 20.28, 20, to rescue from evil, Galatians 1.4, to impute righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to impart adoption, Galatians 4, 5, to sanctify his people, John 17, 19, and to glorify us and to bring us into the presence of God himself. And if every last one of those saving blessings are not actualized in the experience of everyone for whom Christ died, then Christ fails of his intention he is not the good shepherd. He does lose those whom the Father has given him. And the sovereign will and unchangeable purpose of Almighty God is frustrated by the unbelief of man. No, thank you. You may have that Savior. I'll take the one who says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I'll take the God who says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That brings us to our second point. I know I thought about that. I said, that sounds like a really good place to end the message, but there's more. <laughs> if the salvific intent of the atonement is to actually save all for whom Christ has died, then the salvific effect of the atonement must be identical to the intent. Given that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are perfectly united in their saving intention, if the sovereign triune God is for these ends, who can be against them? And so, as we survey the biblical witness once again, we find that Christ's cross actually affected those intentions for which God purposed. So, number two, the salvific effect of the atonement. So, what I'm trying to say is, after all of those verses and all the ones that I didn't read that say this is why Christ came, this was the purpose that he was going to accomplish, there are as many texts that say that is what he accomplished. That's what he came to do and that's what he did. Oh, the, the, the scriptures are just sort of silent on the question of the extent of the atonement. Are you kidding me? So this time, instead of going through the four categories of New Testament literature, I'm going to outline this point by very, very quickly giving 10 doctrines of soteriology that the scripture says the cross accomplished. So last time we went sort of biblically through the, the, the New Testament, this time we're going to go systematically. So number one, redemption. The text in our previous point showed us that Christ intended to redeem by his cross. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 shows us that that's exactly what he did. Hebrews 9, 12. And if you want to just write these references down and not turn... You can do that if you think that you're really good at sword drills. You can, you can flip in your Bibles. Hebrews 9.12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
When Christ shed his blood on Calvary, he did not make redemption possible. He obtained eternal redemption for those for whom he died. Number two, expiation. Expiation, which is a word that means to take away sins, to to bear sins away. Hebrews 9.26, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what Jesus is doing. He put away sin on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So in, him, in giving himself as a sacrifice, Jesus carried our sins away. By his wounds, Isaiah 53, 5, we are not made healable. No, by his wounds, we are healed. The atoning death of Christ of itself healed our spiritual sickness. Three, definitive sanctification or positional sanctification by which Christ sets us apart to be his. Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ made purification for sins. And Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. People who never come to faith were never set apart unto God. And so if Jesus' death sets apart people unto God, and not all have been set apart unto people, uh, as people unto God, then not all were the object of his atoning death. Number four, reconciliation. Romans 5.10 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Colossians 1.22 says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So the death of Christ does not merely make God reconcilable to sinners. It actually of itself accomplishes reconciliation. Number five, salvation, broadly speaking. Titus 2.11 says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, non-particularists seize on that phrase, all men. Then they say, well, Paul is teaching that, that God's purposes in Christ's saving work have made salvation available to all people. If, if Christ comes bringing salvation to all men, it means all people are savable. But the text doesn't say the grace of God has appeared making salvation available to all men. It says that the grace actually brings salvation to all men. And so rather than interpreting the substance of the atonement, bringing salvation, in light of its scope, all men, we should understand the scope of the atonement in light of its substance. The fact that all men don't in actuality have salvation brought to them is evidence that we shouldn't interpret all to mean all without exception. Instead, we should interpret it as all without distinction, all classes of men, just like as the previous context of Titus 2 speaks of older men, verse 2, older women, verse 3, young women, verse 4, young men, verse 6, and slaves, verse 9. That fits the context of chapter 2. But even if we didn't have the context of Titus 2, we can't fudge on what bringing salvation means because we think that the most natural sense of all men is every single person who's ever lived. It can mean all men without distinction like older, younger men, women, and slaves. Number six, regeneration. John six thirty three says that Christ is the bread that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that by his atoning death, Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. 
which is to say that Christ's death of itself gives new spiritual life to those for whom it was accomplished. Seven, justification. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The redemptive death of Christ accomplishes our justification. Number eight, adoption. Galatians 4.5, we've read that already. I won't read it again. Just note it that we are actually adopted by virtue of Christ's work on the cross, Galatians 4 or 5. Number nine, progressive sanctification. We saw definitive or positional sanctification before. Progressive sanctification, actually becoming more holy. First John 1, 7 says the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 9, 14 says the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And finally, number 10, glorification. I'll have you turn there. Go to Hebrews 2. So this is the last place that you are in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. The author describes Christ's saving death as, quote, bringing many sons glory. This is what he did. It was fitting for him for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. This is what God the Father was aiming at in the son's death, and this is exactly what he does. And Scripture refers all of the efficacy of those things to the death of Christ itself not to something that we add to it. Now, does something have to be added to it, which is to say, do we actually have to believe? Does the Spirit actually have to regenerate us? Of course. But it's not to say that Christ's death is just this sort of thing hanging loose in the middle of the air that he does for everybody potentially, which only becomes actual when the Spirit comes and and seals it to our hearts. No. All for whom Christ dies will come to faith but it's the death itself that secures all of the coming to faith, all of the redemption, expiation, definitive sanctification, and so on. So, Scripture not only testifies that the divine intention for the cross was uniformly salvific, it teaches that the cross effectively accomplished all of its salvific intentions. Scripture said that God intended for the, to- the atoning death of Christ to save, to ransom, to satisfy wrath, to take away sin, to redeem, to impart spiritual life, to justify, to sanctify, and to glorify. And then Scripture says that the actual effect of the atoning death of Christ is that by it, Christ saved, ransomed, propitiated, expiated, redeemed, regenerated, justified, adopted, sanctified, and glorified all those for whom he died. So given all of that, Owen's conclusion regarding the extent of the atonement viewed in light of its intent and effect is inescapable. Owen writes this, if the death and oblation or sacrifice, if the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ does sanctify all of them for whom it was a sacrifice, does purge away their sin, Redeem them from wrath, curse, and guilt. Work for them peace and reconciliation with God. Procure for them life and immortality, bearing their iniquities and healing all their diseases. Then he died only for those that are in the event sanctified, purged, redeemed, justified, freed from wrath and death, quickened, saved, and etc. 
but that all are not so sanctified, free, and etc., is most apparent, and therefore they cannot be said to be the proper object of the death of Christ. In other words, Jesus died to purchase the blessings of salvation precisely so that they would be applied to those for whom he purchased them. And yet it cannot be said that all individuals without exception experience these blessings. Not all are called justified and glorified. Many walk the broad road to destruction rather than the narrow way unto salvation. And so therefore, unless we are to grant that the triune God failed in his intention, the intent of the atonement is determinative of its extent. Christ did not die for all without exception, but for the elect alone. Now, I realize, even as I say that, I recognize the unsavoriness of framing the issue negatively like that. There are some for whom Christ did not die. Sounds like terrible news, not the good news of the gospel. But I want to plead with you not to hear it that way because it's not so. We only speak of a restriction in the extent of the atonement because we want to preserve the absolute sovereignty of our Savior and the unbounded efficacy of his atonement. We want to preserve the cross's power to save. Let me illustrate what I mean once more. So Jesus says, with verse we already read, John 6, 51, I give the bread of my flesh for the life of the world. Now, a person who believes in a universal atonement reads that and says, see, he gives his flesh for the life of the world. And you say, okay, so world there, according to you, refers to all people without exception. And they say, yes, what else could it mean? The world. Okay, so if Christ comes to give his flesh for the life of the world, then all without exception have eternal life, right? They say, no. Well, you think I'm a universalist? Christ gives his, life, his flesh for the world so that they might have eternal life. Eternal life is provided for all. It's available for all. So do you see what's happened? If Christ comes to give life to the world and all without exception don't come into possession of life, it's concluded that Christ has not come to actually give life to the world, but to provide life, to make it possible for people to have life. Do you see what's happened? In order to interpret the word world to mean all without exception, the nature of the atonement as an efficacious accomplishment, as that which brings life, has been downgraded, has been reduced to mere possibility. Listen to Dr. Bruce Ware, professor of theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, who rejects particular redemption in favor of a mediating position that he calls the multiple intentions view of the atonement. Ware writes this, we cannot speak correctly of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. Say it again. We cannot speak correctly of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. No, even here, the payment by his death on behalf of the elect renders their salvation possible. I can't even imagine thinking those two sentences. We can't speak of Christ's death as actually and certainly saving the elect. But that's where all my hope is. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. 
till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. We can't speak of Christ's death as actually certainly saving the elect. What does? You see, dear people, that is the violence that must be done to the infinite power of the cross when we seek to universalize its extent. And that is not good news. If Christ's death doesn't save us, if it only makes us savable, we are still damned in our sins. I don't need a cross that makes me savable. I need a cross that actually and certainly saves me. And dear sinner, if you are here this morning and you are outside of Christ, if you are still laboring under the weary load of your sin, painfully aware that despite all of your efforts, you could never earn the righteousness that is required for acceptance with an infinitely holy God, I do not offer you this morning the possibility of salvation. By God's unfathomable grace, I offer you salvation in Christ. I do not offer you a potential savior. I offer you an almighty savior who stood in the place of sinners to bear all the furious fullness of the wrath of God against our sins and who while yet under the heavy hand of divine punishment cried out in sovereign omnipotence, it is finished. You who are weary and heavy laden under the burden of your sin and the fruitlessness of your own good works, you are welcome to this sovereign savior who has no to-do list by which you might convert his gift of savability into salvation, who by his efficacious atonement has fully accomplished salvation, a salvation to which you need add nothing. It merely stands to be received as a gift through faith alone. So turn from your sins, come to Christ and trust in him alone for your righteousness before God and you shall have him. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are to preach that gospel with any integrity, we cannot preach a universal possible atonement. We must preach a particular definite atonement. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help. I ask for you to send the Spirit to give illumination and understanding and conviction to all those within the sound of my voice that it might not be just the, the listing of verses and making an argument that, that sounds like it should be right, but I don't know if it is. I pray that you would come and you would teach your people through the word that you have given us and that I've sought to faithfully present. I pray that you would bring convictions in, the, in this matter, that we would believe all the way down that the cross is what saves us and that we wouldn't by our wrong thinking or our wrong language imply something about the death of Christ that we don't mean to imply. And Father, if we do mean to imply it, I pray that you would grant repentance. I pray that those who would say the kind of statement that the cross does not certainly and actually save his people, I pray that, that you would give them repentance if that's their view of the cross, that you would give them so much bigger view of, of the cross and of Christ than that that you would dwarf their own importance and sovereignty in their own mind, that they would see that they are not 
the many gods that they have made themselves to be, exalting themselves as sovereign. Father, my heart as a shepherd pleads so earnestly with you for your people to get this doctrine right. May it not be my conviction borrowed by the people who are impressed by loud volume. May it be the settled, quiet conviction of a heart that has meditated over these truths that the Spirit of God has burrowed into the souls of these people because it is your word as unsavory as it sounds to our flesh on first hearing. Help us to see and understand with your eyes and your mind, with the mind of the Scriptures, with the mind of Christ that you have given to us. We pray in his name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.